Welcome to episode 8 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles the comic book adventures of the Dark Knight in the post-crisis era. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. And this, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to warn you right now, probably going to be a longer episode than usual. We've got a lot to talk about, not the least of which is the comic we're reviewing this time. Batman issue 404, or what some people may think of as the first chapter of Batman Year One. But before we get to that, Chris, I finally saw the Lego Batman movie. Yay! <laughs> yeah. uh, I, you know, we mentioned this earlier, like a couple episodes ago, and I kind of talked about how the movie really was flying under my radar. I hadn't been paying much attention to the marketing for it, um, and like I, I saw the Lego movie uh, when it came to TV, and I enjoyed it for what it was. I thought it was really charming, but I didn't think... I mean, the Batman in that Lego movie, the original one, really kind of leaned into the joke of, this guy is so... who You would not want to spend any time with him. Like, the <laughs> uber-perfect bat god who's good at everything. Like I was like, oh man, okay, it's good for a joke. I was like, I don't want to see a full hour and, nine, <laughs> hour and a half of this type of joke. But everybody was raving about Lego Batman movies, so I saw it and I loved it. I thought it was terrific. <laughs> uh, of course you did. <laughs> it's awesome. It, it was. It was. And it just – like that was the whole thing. It was like they were presenting it. It's like this is the guy but this isn't who Batman should be or it's who Batman doesn't have to be. And I loved that it was just – it was a love letter to so many different versions of Batman. You had jokes and gimmicks about Batman 66, about Batman 89, all the other versions. You can have Batman as a family man, Batman as the like grim dour loner Batman with Robin Batman without Robin everything I, I loved so much of it it was great it was terrific yeah i mean if you know honestly if they never made another batman movie this could be the final word on batman in the movie <laughs> yes yeah i'd be fine with that this is such a, a good note to end on so. Yeah, it's like, you know, and, you know, not to get into this too much, but with the somewhat problematic uh, path of the DC universe on film, mm-hmm. uh, other than Wonder Woman looking good, uh, <laughs> maybe they should just, uh, you know, go all Lego and do a Lego Justice League movie. <laughs> I would love that. I love that whole scene when he goes to the, the Fortress of Solitude and the Justice League is having a 57th anniversary party because they've been around for 57 years. That was perfect. You got to see yes. the Justice League, the Super Friends, all these other characters. I was like, yes, a Lego Justice League movie. It would be terrific. Martian Manhunter. Yes. Like, I, I tweeted to Diablo Frank after that. I was like, Martian Manhunter is in this movie. He has a line. He's like, oh. yeah. I mean, it's the fact that they had Apache Chief and Samurai, yes. Vulcan yes. and Eldorado. The twins, and Wonder the Dog super- is the DJ. Yes, the Wonder <laughs> Twins in the back. Oh, oh it, was, it was so good. Actually, yeah. I, I think I mentioned to somebody that I think my favorite running joke in the whole movie was so such a weird one, but they kept on saying that Barbara Gordon trained at Harvard for the police. <laughs> what a weird thing. It's like, yeah, if you wanna if you wanna say that somebody is an expert and somebody's like really bright and super smart and educated, saying they went to Harvard is sort of the shorthand for that, like in all of like movies and TV. It's like, well what is the equivalent if you're a cop? Harvard for the police. It's like I love that. I don't know. I don't know why. And then Commissioner Gordon just his whole shtick was that he pushed the bat signal button. I yes. love that. I mean, it's like the Neil Hamilton, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, Commissioner Gordon. Just the, the first thing you do is call Batman. I mean, <laughs> they even hand it to Barbara when she becomes commissioner. It's yeah. awesome. It's just just, <laughs> lean, just nodding toward that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> 
Oh uh, yeah, I loved it. I mean, you know, of course we did a Supermates episode on it, but uh, it, we went and saw it again after that, after we recorded it, and uh, it's it holds up really well. For it's going to be one of those that you can just watch over and over and over mm-hmm. again, and you'll catch more little things. And especially if you're a comic fan, you'll catch oh look, there's that Batmobile, and oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, oh, oh there's that Batman costume, and and things like that, you know, in the background, and and uh, all the villains and what the villains are doing, and you know the fact that calculate is proud that he made a bookshelf or whatever it was he made. <laughs> he got a line of dialogue, the calculator. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, I, I love it. And yeah, when they just start going through and introducing all of the villains at super quick time, and I'm like, I am going to need to see this again. I was like, who the, I was like, Condiment King? I was like, is that Dr. Phosphorus? I was like, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> like looking at all these guys, and you know, of course, for our show, mm-hmm. they did have Magpie. They did, and coming soon, the mime. Uh, yes. So, you know, they were they were scraping the barrel there with the uh, the characters from this era that that didn't quite stick. I guess Magpie kind of has started to stick, oddly enough. But I don't think anybody's really brought back the mime. So, so there you go. And mm. she's got a a Lego minifigure, you know, out that you can go buy in one of the little uh, blind packages. You know, <laughs> so she's out at your Walmart. So somewhere trapped in a little blind package. Oh, man. So, anyway, yeah. From both of us, Chris and I, uh, if you haven't already seen the Lego Batman movie, run out, see it as soon as you can. It is a whole lot of fun. It definitely gets Batman Nightcast seal of approval. Um, yes. We, we heartily endorse it. It is a, I mean, it, it is a kid's movie, but there is no reason an adult who loves this character and loves this mythos shouldn't just be completely blown away by it i i think i was in love like it might be like the best superhero movie i've seen in a couple years so yeah i'd go that part yep Uh, me too Yeah. yeah really good all right let's uh let's bring it back now into the realm of comics as i said we're covering batman issue 404 this episode and that means we have got a new creative team for the next four months which is exciting. It also means we've got another creator to shine the spotlight on, and this time it is none other than the legendary Frank Miller. Miller was born in Maryland, but grew up in Montpelier, Vermont, about 40 minutes away from where I'm sitting right now. And yet it was at the Rosemont Convention Center in Chicago where I met Frank Miller in 1996. Anyway, Frank Miller grew up reading comics and actually had a letter published in issue 3 of The Cat in 1973. His first published work for either of the big two companies was not as a writer, of course, but as the artist on the short story in DC's Weird War Tales, issue 64, in 1978. Over the next couple of months, he penciled more war stories in Weird War 68 and Unknown Soldier 219. Before the year was out, he jumped over to Marvel Comics and drew a fill-in issue of John Carter, Warlord of Mars. In 1979, Miller drew issues 27 and 28 of Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, a story that partnered the wall crawler with Daredevil. Miller saw the potential to do something visually unique with Daredevil and to tell the kind of urban crime stories he preferred within the world of costumed superheroes. So he asked editor Joe Duffy to keep him in mind if the artist spot on Daredevil ever opened up. He didn't have to wait that long. Within a few months, regular series artist Gene Colan left Daredevil, and Miller was given the gig, penciling stories written by Roger McKenzie. But Miller wasn't happy with McKenzie's scripts, and even considered quitting Daredevil, which was struggling in sales. But a few months after Frank Miller started working on The Man Without Fear, Denny O'Neill, hey, that's a familiar name, came on the book as editor. 
O'Neill saw greater potential in Miller's stewardship of Daredevil, so he pulled Mackenzie off the book and gave Miller the keys to write and draw the series. The first issue written and illustrated by Frank Miller was Daredevil 168, which introduced the character Elektra, a deadly assassin and former lover of Daredevil's who has gone on to appear in the Daredevil movie, the Netflix TV series, and even her own live-action film. And I'm not speaking to the quality of these things, I'm just saying they happened. (laughs) Miller continued to write and draw Daredevil for the next 24 issues, creating what many readers consider to be the best run of the character, and maybe one of the best superhero sagas ever published. Much of his work on the series formed the basis of the Daredevil movie and the Netflix TV series. And again, not making a judgment on quality here. Oh, and not for nothing, but as he was wrapping up his first run on Daredevil, Miller also penciled the first Wolverine miniseries, which was pretty damn good. Three years after leaving Daredevil, Miller returned to the character to write a seven-part epic that would collectively be called Born Again. These issues of Daredevil were illustrated by David Mazzuccelli, who you'll hear a little bit more about later. At the same time Born Again was coming out, DC began publishing Batman the Dark Knight, a four-part series written and drawn by Miller, with inks by Klaus Janssen. The first prestige format series, when eventually collected as The Dark Knight Returns, would be the most popular graphic novel ever published, never going out of print and partially serving as the basis for the film Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. Have you noticed how so much of Miller's work finds its way into the big screen yet? As The Dark Knight Returns was smashing sales records, Denny O'Neill was taking over the editorial reins of the Batman books at DC. John Byrne had recently reimagined the origin of Superman in The Man of Steel, and George Perez was about to re-envision The Legend of Wonder Woman. O'Neill asked Miller to do the same thing for The Caped Crusader. The result was Batman Year One, published in Batman 404 through 407. But Miller would only write the story while his born-again collaborator David Mazzuccelli illustrated the story. In the 1990s, Frank Miller returned to Daredevil one more time to basically give old Hornhead the year one treatment in Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. He then went over to Dark Horse Comics where he created Sin City and the ancient Greek war epic 300, both of which have been adapted into films, by the way. And after 300... Nothing. He hasn't done anything since 300. He hasn't written or drawn or said anything that would piss off his fans or spoil the goodwill generated by famous and best-selling works. So we we do not need to talk about anything like The Dark Knight Strikes Again or the the All-Star Batman Around. No, none of that never happened. We're not talking about that. So, Chris, is there anything you would like to add to this this creator spotlight? Well... Since we're not going to talk about any of that that didn't happen, so no, uh, <laughs> no, actually, I, uh, that was a great overview of of, of Frank Miller, and and I learned some things I didn't know. I know, um, but uh, I think the first time, just on a personal level, I think honestly, I'm trying to remember there was a what if issue that was a comedy issue, and I've got it, and I had it as a kid, and I've got a copy of it now. I can't think of the number, and somebody's screaming at it. It's number thirty. It's the thirty something, <laughs> I think. But I think there's a segment in that where Frank Miller actually drew a, like a comedy sequence where it's like, what if Daredevil was deaf instead of blind or something? <laughs> and it's, I mean, if you looked at it, you would just think, okay, this is just Frank Miller Daredevil art. But I think that's the first time I ever saw Frank Miller's art. So mm-hmm. then after that, I think the next thing I didn't really wasn't buying Daredevil. So the next thing I really saw was the Christmas um, story. The, well, no, I didn't see that till the reprint in uh, was it eighty eight the Christmas with the superheroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yes, the oft reprinted Batman Christmas story. It's the only other Batman <laughs> thing he did before Dark Knight. 
Um, but I remember seeing early on in one of the comic magazines, it was either Comic Collector or Comic Feature. Uh, they were actually magazines that were on the newsstand about comic books. Hmm. And, and I could get them around here. In one of those magazines, they had an early article on, you know, the Frank Miller was working on The Dark Knight. And there were early sketches of The Dark Knight. So I kind of, you know, it was weird. I mean, I had absolutely, you know, no way of knowing anything that was going to happen in comics. There was no previews. There was obviously no internet in 1984 or 5, whatever it was. But I saw these early sketches, and even then, I mean, I saw this old, aged Bruce Wayne sketch he did, and I'm like, wow, what in the crap? What is this? (laughs) So already it was blowing my young mind, which, you know, we'll get into as as we talk about this issue, but... uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's uh, and, and you bring up a good point, man. Hollywood just loves Frank Miller. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> and I mean, of course, The Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One have been adapted into DC animated direct-to-video films mm-hmm. as well. These, uh, those were the first two Batman stories that I read. I, I mean, I've mentioned it elsewhere, but you know, I started reading comics in '88, but it was GI Joe comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was right when the the Batman movie was coming out in '89 that my brother got a couple of like trades and graphic novels, and The Dark Knight Returns and Year One were the first two that I read. And The Dark Knight Returns, I loved it more because it was more colorful, um, mm-hmm. because like the imagery and the art was more striking. I thought uh, certainly as a little kid, um, and later on maybe we can talk about whether or not I I still agree with this. But at, at the time, I, I gravitated more towards that story just because it seemed more vibrant it seemed bigger but certainly the story there was a lot that i was not getting at that age like a lot of it went over my head right Um, but (laughs) year one i i I read perfectly it was so straightforward and so simple and it it hit me so you know i mean for a long time miller's version of batman was the one that i knew that i associated with and i started picking up the floppies a year later in 1990 um but it was this was how i interpreted the character for a long time before i started allowing other influences to kind of shape my appreciation for the character. Yeah, well, and, and you know, we've talked about how O'Neill and, and the Bat office seem to be struggling with, okay, who is Batman in this post-crisis universe? And just almost by accident, just because of the timing of the publishing of The Dark Knight, they basically got handed, okay, this is the direction that the public seems to want you to go in. Mm-hmm. And you can you can say, well, you know, some people took some aspects of uh, Miller's Batman to extremes and didn't didn't quite grasp some of the satirical humor in it. They went all dark. They didn't see the the over the top nature of it. They they just went for the more dark, violent, you know, super obsessed character. And uh, but I mean, you know, really, Miller gave you the well, he gave you the Omega. But then he turned around and gave you the Alpha. So you had yeah. the Alpha and Omega of Batman from one creator. So, I mean, in many ways, uh, a lot of creators have just been filling in those blanks ever since. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Okay, folks, usually we would do our spinner rack segment here since we're talking about books that came out the same month as this issue of Batman. But since this episode is already bound to run long and we don't have a creator spotlight for the next issue of Detective Comics, we're going to do the spinner rack segment next episode. So now it's time for us to take a short promotional break. When we come back, Batman Year One Part One. You don't want to miss it. Andy. I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. 
We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. <sighs> Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017. From the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. Batman issue 404 has a cover date of February 1987, but according to Mike's Amazing World, the on-sale date was November 13, 1986. The book cost 75 cents and sported a now-iconic cover by David Mazzuccelli depicting young Bruce Wayne looking down at the bodies of his slain parents. Chris, what do you think of the cover? To me, this is the single most iconic Batman image that Batman is not in. (laughs) Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, obviously he is in because he's Bruce Wayne, but right. Batman does not appear in this image. But instantly, you know, this is, I mean, the origin of Batman in one image, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, and and I can tell you, when I bought this uh, this comic off the rack in nineteen uh, November of nineteen eighty six or whenever it might have been a little bit later, of course, I was quite shocked that they would show dead people mm-hmm. on the cover of a comic like this. And you notice there's no comics code. Yeah. Uh, on this cover there's it was not approved by the comics code um and it's deceptively simple it's powerful and you know just looking at this cover you notice little things you know thomas is touching martha's shoulder bruce's fingers are barely touching his mother's like almost as if he wants to touch her but he's afraid to um i mean there's it's it's just so powerful and it's not overt, but the three figures are almost making the bat symbol. If you squint, you can kind of see it. It might just be a coincidence, but mm. maybe it is. And I don't know. But and like you said, we get a We got a new logo, a new bat silhouette. The font is similar to the previous one, but it's not as elongated. And it, this this book has we'll talk about, you know, that this is, you know, the first mini series within a series, I'm sure. But as, as ever, as O'Neill was, was pushing it in the editorial column, but this is, I think the first comic I ever saw that had a trade dress, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's, it's got this uniform look on just these issues. And that was a shocker too. So, I mean, this was just like a total slap in, I mean, not, not slap in the face in a bad way, but like a wake up call slap in the face, uh, when I picked it up off the off the stands, you know, I mean, it, it, I mean, I remember being, you know, standing there looking like I'm like, wow, this is something special here, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was there. <laughs> it's interesting. And by now they had already collected The Dark Knight Returns. I mean, that came out uh, two seconds after the fourth book in that series came out. It wouldn't surprise me if they knew beforehand that they were like, yeah, this four-part series, it's going to be collected again. They're going to do the same thing. So maybe that 
informed how they designed and laid out like the covers and, and kind of gave it that trade dress. Maybe they mm-hmm. knew that they were going to package them all together once it was done. Yeah, I think so. I think because the we talked about, I think the hardcover came out the month before of Dark Knight, and then this month the trade comes out. Yep. And if I if my memory serves me right, I got the first few chapters, at least the first chapter, maybe a, a couple of this before I went made my first trip to the comic shop to get my uh, trade paperback of of Dark Knight. So I did read this first. So this is this tells you. I mean, I remember. <laughs> I, I was vague, but I do. Rem- I'm not Michael Bailey. I don't remember the exact. You know where I was, where I <laughs> ate dinner. You know, because Michael's got like freaking eidetic memory about those things. But I do recall that. Uh, kind of the event so that shows you how much of an impact this made it on me at the time all right you ready to talk about the story yes all right year one part one who i am how i come to be is written by frank miller illustrated by david mazzuccelli colored by richmond lewis lettered by todd klein and edited by denny o'neill On January 4th, two men arrive in Gotham City, one by train, one by plane, and each regrets his mode of travel. Lieutenant Jim Gordon is moving to the city ahead of his wife Barbara, who may be pregnant. To Gordon, the train puts him too close to the ugliest parts of Gotham, and he won't allow Barbara to see that when she arrives later. Gordon is met at the station by his new partner, Detective Flass, who puts a strong, choking hand on a Hare Krishna following Gordon. Flass tells Gordon that life in Gotham is easy if you're a cop, and lets the dark insinuation hang in the air. At the same time, 25-year-old Bruce Wayne returns to Gotham after living abroad for 12 years. As his plane descends, Bruce thinks he should have come by train so he could be close to the same ugliness that Gordon saw. After ducking the paparazzi, Bruce Wayne takes a car back to his family home of Wayne Manor, where he is reunited with Alfred the butler. Later that day, he will kneel down in front of the graves of his mother and father. Gordon meets Police Commissioner Loeb, who we learn from a television talking head was under investigation by Assistant District Attorney Harvey Dent until the lead witness went missing. Loeb impresses upon Gordon the most important elements of working within the Gotham Police Department, teamwork and discretion. After meeting Loeb, Gordon tours the city with Flass, thinking of all the other jobs he could do to support Barbara besides being a cop. Flass stops the car abruptly, gets out, and walks over to brace some guys standing on a street corner. He barely gives them time to declare their innocence before he's slamming their heads against the wall and body-slamming them into dumpsters. Gordon watches all of this from the car, hating himself for not stopping Flass, but he tells himself he doesn't know the city yet, he doesn't know how things are done here, so he watches Flass abuse these guys and memorizes every move Flass makes so that he can be ready to take him down if and when the time comes. Flass comes back to the car with a switchblade he took from one of the guys, only it's not really a knife, as Gordon demonstrates. It's a fold-out comb. Flass laughs it off, feeling zero shame or remorse for his actions, and Gordon continues to pray that his wife isn't pregnant. Jump ahead to February 12th, and Detective Flass confirms, for us anyway, that Barbara is pregnant. Flass mentions it as part of a subtle reminder that Lieutenant Gordon really needs to do a better job of fitting in with the rank-and-file cops and adapt to their particular method of justice, or he'll never last in Gotham. On February 21st, Bruce Wayne cuts through a stack of cement bricks with just his hand. He knocks a tree down by kicking it. His body is ready. He knows how to fight. But something isn't quite right, so his mission will have to wait a little longer. 
February 26th, Detective Flass tells Commissioner Loeb about an instance where Gordon refused a bribe from a priest and then gave the squad a lecture about corruption, punctuated by the suspension of one of the detectives. Loeb is disappointed that Gordon isn't adjusting to the Gotham way, and approves Flass's suggestion to basically give Gordon a code red. Two weeks later, March 11th, Gordon leaves his pregnant wife to go to work, the night shift, but he's met in the parking garage by half a dozen men in ski masks and baseball bats. Gordon puts up as good a fight as he can, but he's eventually taken down and brutally beaten by the men, who tell him this is for his own good. And as Gordon's attackers leave, laughing to themselves, he recognizes Flass's voice. That same night, Bruce Wayne goes to a different parking garage to begin his first recon mission of the city. After establishing an alibi to fool the press, he sneaks away, dresses like a homeless veteran, applies makeup to change his facial complexion, and a fake scar to discourage any lingering glances. He walks through the city, scouting the different places where gangs, hustlers, and junkies hang out. Finally, he arrives at the East End, the worst part of Gotham. Almost instantly, he's approached by a prostitute named Holly, who can't be older than 12. Bruce isn't interested in her services, only her disgustingly inappropriate age. Her pimp arrives and scolds Holly for not having better sense of the clientele. He threatens her, and Bruce starts to intervene, knowing he shouldn't provoke a fight with a pimp here on the street. That's the exact opposite of what this recon mission was about. This whole encounter is witnessed by another prostitute, Selena Kyle, who is doing a dominatrix number for a client in a hotel several floors up. From her window, she sees the pimp swing a knife at Bruce. He disarms the pimp and kicks him to the curb. Before Bruce can retreat, Holly sticks a knife into his leg. She calls her friends over to gang up on Bruce. Angry at himself for losing control of the situation, Bruce lashes out at his attackers, in the process breaking Holly's wrist. This enrages Selina, who climbs out the window and leaps down to the street. She attacks Bruce, but he recognizes her karate training and counterattacks, and that's when the cops arrive. Two uniformed police get out of the cruiser with guns drawn. One tells Bruce to freeze, but the other pulls the trigger and shoots Bruce in the arm. While the cops argue over whether the shooting was justified, Bruce loses consciousness from blood loss. He wakes up in the back of their cruiser. They haven't identified him yet. They're more concerned with whether or not they should take him to the hospital or let him bleed to death. Bruce warns them to get out of the car, but they assume he's just on drugs. He shatters the handcuffs, binding his wrists, and punches through the cage into the front seat. He grabs the driver, forcing the car to spin out of control, and crashes into a truck. He climbs out and carries the two unconscious police to safety before the fire reaches the gas tank and the car explodes. After blacking out again, Bruce wakes up in his own car in the parking garage. Still bleeding badly, he puts the key in the ignition and starts to drive home. In his condition, he drives wildly, erratically, and nearly crashes into Jim Gordon, who is heading in the other direction. Gordon woke up from his beating by Flass and the others, realizing that they did enough to hurt him, but not put him in the hospital. He refuses to go home and let Barbara see him in this state. Instead, he wants a little payback. He calls dispatch and finds out that Flass is off-duty, playing poker with some of the other cops at Bay Ridge. Gordon stakes out the house, watching all of them leave one by one until Flass. He lets Flass drive drunk a few minutes before running him off the road. He draws his gun and forces Flass out of the car. Then he puts his gun away and tosses Flass a baseball bat. One-on-one -on -one against a younger, stronger man armed with a bat and green beret training, Jim Gordon still brings the ruckus and beats Flass unconscious. He dumps Flass's gun in the woods to rust overnight, then strips him naked and leaves him cuffed on the side of the road. He knows that Flass will never report it, never admit to anyone that Gordon beat him single-handedly. But he'll know at least what Gordon is capable of, and Gordon may at last know what it takes to be a cop in Gotham City.
Bruce crashes his Porsche when he gets back to Wayne Manor. He crawls to his father's study, leaving a trail of blood, and collapses in a chair in front of the marble bust of Thomas Wayne. He could ring a bell to summon Alfred. The butler could stitch him up and save his life. But what would be the point? He knows how to fight, but he's still not ready for his war on crime, and he'd rather die than wait any longer. He's already waited 18 years since that terrible night when he left the movie theater with his mother and father, and a mugger stopped them outside and gunned down his parents. Since that terrible night, his life has led him to this point. How can he go forward? Then, suddenly... The window of his study shatters, and a bat flies into the room. It perches on the bust of Thomas Wayne and looms over Bruce. He remembers being frightened of this creature as a child, and knows, at last, what it will take to fight crime in Gotham City. He rings the bell, summoning Alfred. End of part one. Chris, what did you think of Batman 404? Uh, it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. Uh, well, you know, I mean, it's really hard to – it's almost hard to even quantify the, how much this this particular story means to me. Uh, I prefer this over The Dark Knight um, mm-hmm. as much as I like The Dark Knight. I think because – uh, creators, including filmmakers, have uh, taken it uh, <laughs> uh, too literally and not n- not seen the humor in it and the fact that it was meant to be an over-the-top kind of uh, satire almost uh, in a way that uh, – you know, it, it's kind of tainted it, which it, I, I hate that, but it but it has. Mm-hmm. But even before that, I prefer Batman Year One, and and uh, like I said, I mean this on a personal level. You know, when I read this, like you said, it's a very simple, straightforward story, but it's not the kind of story that you expect to find in an 80s superhero comic. I mean, it's a very, very urban, very there's no supervillains. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, corruption and, you know, there's day to day, just the day to day blase of, of existence. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and, you know, I was, uh, you know, like 11 years old when this came out, almost 12. So it made me kind of mature because it is a mature story. It's not mature in the way that it has boobs and lots of swear words, but it is a mature story in that it's about adult situations and within the framework of a fictional story that involves a guy that dresses up in tights and a cape, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, it was just a big shock and a shot in the arm for me to just say, wow, this is, I had never even seen a comic that looked like this. I wasn't following Daredevil, you know, the, the artwork and the, which I know we want to, we want to wait and talk about Mazzuccelli's artwork more in the next episode, but the artwork was like nothing I'd ever really seen in a comic. Uh, it's definitely a DC comic. The coloring was unlike anything I'd ever seen. This was like a comic book from a parallel universe. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> it made quite the impression. <laughs> Rightfully so. Um, and yeah, before before going further, for those of you listening, uh, there is a lot to discuss about the art in this series, uh, and we will on in further episodes. 
We will do a creator spotlight on David Mazzuchelli uh, when we cover issue 405, and that will be episode 10 of this podcast. Um, and there's a lot to talk about with the, his art and the uh, and the coloring, too. We'll push that off to a later episode and just say that the art in this is, is fantastic. We can see mm-hmm. a lot of a few specific things, um, but in general, we'll, we'll come back to that one later. Um, but yes to everything you said. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I completely agree. Um you mentioned how this is unlike any other kind of like superhero comic that you would see. There aren't any supervillains. You know who isn't in this issue at all? Batman. Mm, Batman. Yeah, Batman. <laughs> Batman is not in this comic. He is not Batman. Not even on the cover, as you pointed out. The only kind of thing we get of Batman is the new sort of title logo, the bat silhouette behind the title, which a keen-eyed observer will note is the same silhouette that we used for this podcast's uh, thumbnail. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is a story. In fact, I've heard as many people argue, is this story about Bruce Wayne or is it about Jim Gordon? Or hmm. is it both? Uh, because I certainly think in this chapter we get a lot more of Gordon than we do of Bruce. Even though, like you know, the last half of the story is all about Bruce's first night out and how awful it goes. <laughs> like pretty much, short of dying, his first mission couldn't go worse than this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we spend a whole lot of time getting into Gordon's head and the way he feels about the city and the way he feels about his wife and, and all of these things and, and his fears and what, it, what it's going to take for him to actually become the character that we know. And we do get captions narrated by Bruce, but it still feels like he's keeping us at, at a little bit of a distance. Mm-hmm. Whereas Gordon, we're, I, uh, we are, I think, meant to relate to Gordon. We are meant to feel sympathy with him. Bruce, I right. don't know if we're ever really meant to sympathize with him. And this gets to something that I never really realized until I was doing this rereading. And I was thinking about the last page of this story when the bat comes crashing through the window. And back when we did Secret Origins Podcast Episode 6, we talked about the Golden Age, Batman's origin, and Mm -hmm. how Bruce Wayne is at this moment of crisis where he's like, I'm missing something. What can help me do this? The bat comes flying through the window, lands, and he sees the bat, and he thinks that that is his inspiration. It's a great, iconic moment, but for this story, Miller took what was already iconic and inspirational and ramped up the drama he like cranked it up to eleven because oh, yeah. he's—it's not just this moment of philosophical crisis. Bruce is bleeding to death. Mm-hmm. He's sitting in his chair, about to die, but he's at this point where he thinks, "My, I, this is what I have dedicated almost twenty years of my life to—to being this warrior against crime—and I've screwed it up. And if this isn't going to work, if I can't do this, there's nothing else for me." Like mm-hmm. this, this issue, I would say, justifies the argument that Batman is the real character, that Bruce isn't really in there. And I don't know how I feel about that yet, because um, I was sort of just thinking about this. But I think the reason why it, it feels like we're meant to relate to Gordon and not to Bruce, because he's not in the costume, but mentally and emotionally, and he is in that headspace of Batman already. And he comes mm-hmm. back just to do this. And he's like, if I can't fight crime, if I can't do this, there's no point in living. I'm just going to bleed to death here because it, it's all been a failure for the last 18 years. And it's only when the bat comes crashing in that he realizes that's it. That's how I do this. That's been the one thing that has been missing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it, as a moment like that, that last page, I was just, oh, I love that so much because that it, it just elevates the character and it takes what was already a good moment and makes it, you know, like, almost like puts it in HD. It's just like, whoa, it's like <laughs> yeah. so much more, more real and dramatic and vibrant. Um, I think maybe we, we get a little bit more of Gordon in the story and maybe we're meant to like Gordon a little bit more because he still has room to evolve. And I don't think we see, I, maybe I'm wrong, maybe we'll, we'll argue this in further episodes, but I don't think we see much of an evolution of Bruce in the story. We'll see Batman get new gadgets, but I think he's, uh, other than maybe who he, who he allows himself to trust is really the only change we see in his arc. Uh, so maybe yeah. Gordon is the one who has a story arc in this story, and maybe that makes Gordon the protagonist. I don't know. That's that's we will have f- future episodes where we can talk about that. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying, and I've I've heard that too. That this is more of Gordon's story, and it, and I think it's obviously the best thing that ever happened to Jim Gordon. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took him from a you know a consistent but but fairly background player. I mean, he had been fleshed out somewhat by. Jerry uh, Conway and Doug Minch in the 80s, but it was always something more about, you know, well, uh, you know, Mayor Hill's trying to get uh, Gordon out of office and and Harvey Bullock's working against him. And there wasn't, I mean, which, you know, there's some of that here too, obviously, but uh, the corruption within the department's a big part of it. But you didn't get inside his head, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the first time that I think that, that Jim Gordon really narrates the story and now, there was an aspect of this, the fact that he comes in from Chicago and wasn't a, a, a rookie cop all the way through from from rookie cop to, you know, commissioner in Gotham uh, kind of bothered me a bit because that made the uh, uh, one of my favorite Batman stories, the player on the other side uh, by Mike W. Barr and, and Michael Golden, that made it, you know, out of continuity because the whole thing of that is that that Gordon was a, you know, a rookie cop yeah. Yeah, the night that Bruce Wayne's parents are killed. But although later on somebody kind of fits it back into continuity, <laughs> which we might eventually get to, to but, um, you know, that jumped out at me. Uh, the fact that, you know, when they say that, you know, okay, his wife, Barbara is pregnant. I'm like, okay, how old is Batgirl going to be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that little detail about the story is going to lead to some stuff that we'll have to address later on. Yeah, I mean, it's. I still kind of wish they'd figured a way to kind of work that out. But I mean, honestly, and not to get off get off the story too long, but just a quick tangent. You know, DC was in a really weird place with their female counterparts of their superheroes. They they basically wanted them to go away at this point. I mean, they. They, you know, in, in Crisis, they portrayed Barbara as, you know, she had no confidence. She was scared. That made Supergirl look extra heroic in their scenes together. Supergirl then gets killed. And, you know, then we find out later what happens to Barbara. Uh, <laughs> so it's just like at this point, I mean, it's it's weird to think now with all the DC superhero girls and Batgirl of Burnside and all that stuff being really popular. But DC basically wanted nothing to do with <laughs> With Supergirl and Batgirl, and Supergirl's got a TV show. Uh, but, uh, but you know, that, I mean, I don't know if that had anything to do with uh, – Miller probably just wanted to go off on his own and had little regard for worrying about where Batgirl comes in and and uh, because this stuck, you know, right. it, they ran with it. I think it boils down to wanting to create the most – clear distillation of the character, the most accessible, you know, pristine version of these iconic heroes. 
and to some extent, that means you gotta shed off a lot of their legacy. Um, mm-hmm. And it's funny, while you know, during the same time period, DC will em- be embracing legacy characters like the Flash, uh, and as you know, further down, more like legacies like Green Lanterns and Green Arrows and stuff. At the same mm-hmm. time, they're trying to detach Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman from anything like their legacy characters, and it leads to some leads to some confusion, and it leads some beloved characters, as you said, like Supergirl and Batgirl, kind of in the lurch with nothing to do. Uh, yeah. In in one case, they just killed one off, and the other one uh, might have been worse, at least for a short <laughs> period of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A few other things. I- I've never had the individual issues of this series. Um, I've only had the trade paperback. Now, I've actually gone through, I think, three copies of the trade. Like, <laughs> my brother had the original one that came out in 88, I think it was. Um, and we had that one. At some point, I did have a hardcover of this, and I can't tell you what happened to it. I may have lent it to mm. a friend and never got it back. I may have traded it or sold it or something, but... The version I have now is the trade paperback. It's kind of got like a reddish background. It's a close-up, so like you only see half of Batman's face, and he's got red eyes. Uh, since I've always had the trades, I've never really thought, I was like, well, it would be nice to have the individual issues, but do I want to spend $50 getting them? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, I'm sure I could use that money, on, uh, put that money towards something else. Um <laughs> But yeah, so it actually, I had a question, I asked you this before we started, and I didn't mention this in the synopsis, but each issue opens up with something that we haven't seen similarly, is kind of a title or chapter page, but Mm -hmm. done in a style that is very different. Um, And in this one, for the first one, it's Bruce in his chair bleeding with a bat silhouette partially covering him. Uh, and it's a chapter one, who I am, how I come to be. And then there's like this little text piece here. He will become the greatest crime fighter the world has ever known. It won't be easy. That's a mm-hmm. damn good intro. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Like, and I, and I got to tell you, that's in the individual issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we, like I told you. And, and it, uh, I had never seen a comic book with a title page mm-hmm. like that before. I mean, this was a jump, a quantum leap forward in the, uh, the art form of comics for me. Um, and I've always really liked that image because and, – and, and this this will come up in the actual scene in the story too. But the way the bat's coming in, it's like you know covering like half of Bruce's body as he's mm-hmm. sitting in his – probably his father's chair yeah. in the study. And uh, you know, is it is it coming in to save him? Is it going to consume him? Well, it's a little bit of both, I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> symbolically, definitely. Yeah, it's like going to you know, it's it's literally covering him, you know, as he's bleeding, as he's dying, you know. So it's mm-hmm. you know, this this is some heavy stuff here. This is <laughs> <laughs> lots of symbology and, and yeah. yeah, it's 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 definitely that. And again, I think that kind of they they were treating this as a different piece, like and again considering. Wonder Woman got a brand new start with an issue one. Mm-hmm. Superman got his own miniseries to kick off called Man of Steel. Batman, you would think it would be renumbered or they would give him the, this. Like, I, I was shocked when I learned that this story wasn't like I, I knew it was originally published, but I assumed it would have been a miniseries called Batman Year One, issue one through four. No, this is just Batman 404? Really? Yeah. Like, just kind of, like, <laughs> dropped in the middle of his... Like, there's nothing I- iconic or milestone-like about that number. It's just kind of, like, in the dumped in the middle. So, considering that, they did everything they could to make this stand apart and make this look like something different. 
Yeah. And, uh, and you know, you got to wonder based on what we've the issues we've covered and the fact that uh, we have discussed that they don't seem to know at this point what direction they're going in uh, with the Batman books. It, you know, D- you know, Denny O'Neill. I know I'm trying to throw shade on Denny O'Neill. You know, I don't we don't know exactly at what point he was given the titles and stuff. But, you know, obviously had this project going with Miller and, you know, I don't know if it was from the get go supposed to be in Batman 404. But when you're not exactly sure what direction you're going in in your title, what better thing to do than it's like, hey, I got a Frank Miller story to put in it. (laughs) Okay, coming hot on the heels of the Dark Knight. And I remember the advertisements for this uh, ran in the comics. You know, you got that. The first one I remember seeing was uh, on some letter pages, like in the bottom corner. It was like a a long rectangle, wide rectangle that had uh, it said like you think you know him, the Batman or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was a Mazzucchelli or Mazzucchelli uh, drawing a Batman that looked more Bob Kane-ish than <laughs> what we get in this series. His ears are like going out more to the side, like the very early Bob Kane Batman. And uh, then, of course, you got the awesome shot of Batman just standing there with one side of his cape over his shoulder. And uh, he's like kind of looking down. He looks and even in that ad, I thought, man, he kind of looks like Adam West, but he's pissed. You know, it's just, I mean, it's like, wow, I'd never seen Batman look like that. I mean, his cape looks like it's made out of leather and, you know, his boots do. And it's like, wow, he looks tough. And it's got the really cool text that, you know, he's the he's a cunning, shrewd fighter, blah, blah, blah. Blah, you know how did he how did he come to be and all that type of stuff and I mean they were running those ads and like a lot of them were in the very back cover inside back cover of comics at the time so they were promoting this like this was a like this was coming it's a big deal but yeah it, it was in just in Batman mm-hmm. which is <laughs> it didn't get that mini series treatment which is amazing yeah. um, going through the story like I said the first page is a that sort of title page. The next six pages, so pages basically two through seven, are a lot of setup because the mm-hmm. bulk of the story is starts on page eight. That's all the same night in March when we get these two major events happening to our two characters. I love in the beginning the, the synchronicity of Bruce and Gordon arriving in the city the same time but mm-hmm. juxtaposed with how they view their entrances – um, it, it's a great little bit of establishing who these characters are. Basically, our our two protagonists, our two heroes that we're going to be following throughout this adventure, even though they go on different paths. On page seven, and I wanted to get your your info on this because I'm just looking at the trade, and I wonder if it's colored differently in the uh, in the floppy copy. Okay. Page seven, Commissioner Loeb's suit. Yes. Is it like a like a plaid green orange like type <laughs> type with a purple shirt like? In the floppy, it is a white suit with a magenta purpley shirt. Okay. Yeah. Even though the coloring is both by Richmond Lewis in the collect, the collect edition I have is the first printing, the Warner Books edition again. Okay. Uh, the first printing from 1988. And I've had two copies of that. I got one that's beat all the hell, and I think I gave that to Andrew. Okay. And I've got a, a decent one. And I think I actually ended up with two. Somebody got me one, and I just put it away. And so after I beat the hell out of the old one, I, I pulled this one out. But the coloring is vastly different. I mean, it's mm. it's still muted. You know, if you're used to the trade paperback, the coloring in the comic is still muted. But it does have a more vibrant – there's more vibrant colors in the palette. They're okay. not overused, but they do come through. Like Flass's overcoat in, when he first meets Gordon is blue. 
Uh, okay. You know, it's pre- it's pretty blue. Um, things like that. I mean, just weird. Like when Bruce is cutting, chopping through the blocks on page seven and kicking the tree, he's got on like a teal uh, sweatsuit hmm. instead of the gray. So. Hmm. I mean, just just different, strange things like that. So Richmond Lewis, she must have went back and uh, recolored it like almost instantly <laughs> for the for the collection. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, I guess it was about a year, but you know, so strange. <laughs> yeah, but I just, I was looking at that. I was like, he almost looks like he like a Riddler type of thing. The commissioner's suit. It's like this green <laughs> plaid jacket. Like, oh. Is that tweed or polyester? I don't know, but that's a that's one a side of two look. faces jacket. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it look, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at the uh, the trade now too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but the rest of the issue, the way it's colored again, it's this somewhat almost kind of sepia, subdued look. It's again, it doesn't look like a normal superhero comic. It looks more of like a sort of crime noir type of thing that that mm-hmm. has these the strong colors, but really kind of played down almost dare I say it, like a Zack Snyder type of color palette, like the oh, way God. he would approach it, like with his movies, you know, like, like I think if we saw Superman in this issue, it wouldn't be bright, shiny reds and blues. It would be a little bit darker. <laughs> Sorry, I, yeah, hate to, well, I hate to invoke that. Why did I say that name? I hate to invoke that. You say it three times he appears. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't you dare. <laughs> you know, before we move forward, I forgot to mention that the title of this story is taken from the the original Batman origin story from Detective 33, which as reprinted in Batman number one, the legend of Batman, who he is and how he came to be. Yeah. So I think thought that was a nice little nod by Miller. I mean, it's one of those things that's not beating you over the head, but I mean, you know, this is the origin of Batman. So he went back to the original origin of Batman mm-hmm. and kind of readapted the title. So I thought that was neat. Um, once we get in the story with the two guys, um, I love what happens to Gordon in this, how he gets – basically they do a code red on him and then he goes back and beats up Flash by himself. I love that. When we see Bruce walking through Gotham, we get some name drops of a few areas of the city that named after Batman creators. We get Robinson Park, Finger Memorial, and Sprang Mission. Yes. <laughs> um we talked about Selena a lot in the last couple episodes because of what was going on in Detective Comics and the decision to turn her from Batman's lover to a villain again. Almost immediately now we have this other retcon of, of who she is and her backstory. What do you think of Selena now having being like this sort of dominatrix prostitute in the East End of Gotham? <laughs> well, I, when I first read that, I did not like that. I'm still not sure I like it. I think that may have been a bridge too far. It certainly makes sense. I mean, I guess in a way, if you're going to portray Catwoman as this character that's on the other side of the law, who dresses in this this outfit, then you could certainly go in that direction. You know, but of course, you know, we're also in the DC universe. We're putting on a mask and tights. It's just, you know, it's just like, you know, hot dog vendor, you know, right. Uh, But, you know, as you know, I was really shocked by that. You know, that was that was one of the aspects of the story that at at 11, uh, 12 years old, I was like shocked. I'm like, wait a minute, is Catwoman supposed to be a a hooker. I'm not even sure I knew what pimps were, you know, I mean, <laughs> at that age, you know, I mean, I think I knew what, you know, I'd watched enough, like we talked about, I watched enough night court to know what a hooker was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, 
I've gone back and forth on it over the years. Um, of course, DC eventually kind of tried to distance themselves from that. They didn't want to say year one was out of continuity because God knows they sold way too many trade paperbacks to do that. And it's the <laughs> foundation of their, their post-crisis Batman, obviously. But they did, I think at some point when Catwoman had her title in the 90s, they tried to say she was like acting as a prostitute. And she really wasn't one or something. I don't know what that even means, but they were, you know, they were basically right. trying to play both sides of it. But yeah, I've, I'm not really sure what I think of it. I, I think it works within this story. When you get outside of this story, that's when you when I start to have problems with it. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of the same way. Like when you think about the trajectory of her character and what she does, it's like okay, it it does kind of make sense. She's a character who is a thief and puts on this costume that accentuates her sexuality. I mean, Catwoman does use sex kind of as her first line of offense when, you know, she's dealing with Batman or other characters. So it does kind of make sense, and it, I would feel a little bit hypocritical shaming the character for being a prostitute now after I made the defense of them last episode with Rhonda. <laughs> but I do think it's worth knowing, like, the difference of how Barr and Davis portrayed somebody like Rhonda in, in the last episode of Detective that we covered versus how Miller and Mazzuccelli portray Holly and the other kind of streetwalkers in this one. Uh, it's it's a bit of a, a difference. Ultimately, I kind of come down to, like, I don't know if this is necessary, but it does sort of make sense to bring the character to this place, to re-envision her this way. And I also think it could have been worse. And by that, I mean, imagine Frank Miller today, or or back in 2007, instead of 1987, telling this story and what he would have done with Selena Kyle. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, so just for the listener, think about that for a second, and then just count your blessings. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he was showing restraint based on the Frank Miller we know today. Yeah. And of course, you know, a good good part of uh, of Sin City, the heroines of Sin City are are strippers and call girls and, you know, and prostitutes and so this was this was training ground for the from the characters of Sin City in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, um you know, what oh, one thing I want to ask you since we're talking about that scene is uh, what do you think of the big burly gal in the fishnets? <laughs> Well, I love me some fishnets. Um, not sure that's a gal. I mean, she might self-identify that way. Um, I, I, you know, I, no judgment here. No judgment here. Right. Her face looks like eight miles of bad road either way. You know. Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning that one. <laughs> uh, you know. I always thought the yeah we're hopping around here, but it's Batman Year One, so we're just all giddy right. and stuff. But I always thought the scene where Bruce is you know after he gets shot, which is just you know awful that they just you know freaking shoot him like that. But that just shows you how bad this right. Gotham is. Which remind me to get back to that. I want to get back to that. But mm-hmm. the scene where he you know it's like get out, you know, and, and, <laughs> and they're like, "Why are you crazy?" And then he breaks. I mean, that is like one of the most badass Batman scenes, especially since he's not Batman, you yeah. know. But the fact that he goes back to save them, mm-hmm. um, that's one of the aspects about this that puts it over Dark Knight for me because it's still, it still feels very sincere that Miller is still thinking, okay, Batman is the hero. He still has this code of ethics he's not going to violate. Even though this is darker, grittier, grimier, more realistic, this Batman, Bruce Wayne here, could still evolve into the Bronze Age Batman. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so this feels more iconically true to Batman, you know, that he, you know, he he might be 
his methods might be a little on the uh, rougher side of the superhero set, but he's not going to let two cops burn up in a car just to get away, you know. So even if they're corrupt cops, which they certainly seem to be, at least one of them is. And uh, I think we need this scene to show, at least for, for this story, for Batman Year One, we need this moment to show why Batman would not trust the police. Um, mm-hmm. Why he would not help the police, why he would be at odds with the police, and that is going to be a, a major through line for the story, um, which will culminate with him and Gordon eventually having to have a a scene together where they come to terms with each other. But we need to see Bruce Wayne. He he needs to do more than witness. He needs to be a victim of the crime, uh, the corruption of the police department, and how bad it is that they would just see some guy and shoot him and then make up the case the officer was like well he was going to run or something which in fairness Bruce was about to run yeah, now he was. he wasn't armed he wasn't a threat to them so they didn't have to pull the trigger but yeah and and when he wakes up they're like should we take him to the to the hospital and have to deal with his possible pressing charges or no nah, let's just let him bleed to death and we'll deal with that paperwork it's <laughs> so is like, no Bruce needed to have firsthand evidence that the police cannot be trusted that they're not on his side because that will fuel a major part of the story going forward. Yes, that's true. And, you know, really everybody, especially after the 1989 movie has this idea that Gotham city is like hell on earth. You Mm -hmm. know, it's this, the world's worst city. It's, it's the most corrupt, awful city, but really before this story, there were few a few instances of corruption in Gotham. Like I said, during the Conway and Minch runs, you had Hamilton Hill. Yep. Uh, you had Boss Thorne in the Inglehart Rogers run. But those were exceptions. Other yeah. than that, Gotham was, you know, your typical, you know, it's there's crime. Yeah, there's supervillains. But the city officials and stuff aren't bad people. They, you know, they're they might be ineffectual, but they're not, you know, corrupt. Uh, they're not villains in their own right. So this was really the beginning of Gotham City as hellhole mm. uh, right here in this issue, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it all all stems from from Gordon's train ride into the city and his lamentation that he's here and that he's going to have to possibly raise a family in this in this city, which, you know, it's it's right from the get go. I think it's interesting the uh, the choice of the lettering on this one. Because the captions, uh, Gordon's captions are a very straightforward uh, print font. Uh, you know, Todd Klein gave him. You know, it's it's it's, it's very yeah. matter of fact. Bruce's are a nice cursive, so it kind of says. You know, speaks to his upbringing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's had a much uh, uh, much wealthier. Uh, more refined upbringing mm-hmm. than than Gordon. I think that's neat. It's uh, and and they do a good job of it's still legible because a lot of times you get cursive text in comics and you can't freaking read it. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, I've never actually thought about that, but you're right. Like their their different text captions and their different narrative captions are both very visually distinct. You can tell who's think who's speaking and who's thinking at either time. Without like, you know, the Batman Superman comic right, or right. bat symbol. It's like it's not like a badge for Gordon and then a bat symbol for Batman or something. <laughs> you know, Todd good on you, Todd Klein. That's, yeah, I know. Yeah, good job. Good catch too. That was good. Yeah. So um yeah, I mean ultimately we're just starting. There's so much to digest in this it's a it is one of the most famous, most iconic and best selling Batman books ever for a reason. There's a whole lot to do and we're gonna spend at least four future episodes going over this. But yeah, as a as an introductory chapter that does not include Batman <laughs> from from cover <laughs> to the final page, we do not see the classic character in the cape and cowl at all in this. 
And it's funny, like, you mentioned how striking the cover is with just, you're right, that moment of Bruce on his knees in Crime Alley looking over his dead parents is the most iconic image about Batman that doesn't include Batman. That's also, we don't get that scene in this issue, except for, like, a little bit of flashback. That moment isn't told in real time. No. It's just the, this brief flicker in, uh, like, on the second to last page. It's also, the, in my opinion, the single best version of the, the Wayne murders. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's one page. Mm-hmm. It's very simply done. I mean, you get the, the – they're happy in the movie theater. You know, they get both of them getting shot. And then, the, the, of course, the look mm-hmm. on the haunted eyes of young Bruce Wayne. The extreme close-up. The extreme close-up is just – I mean, my God, of course, you do get before right before that, you do get the spotlight of in Joe Chill or whoever it is running away. Uh, it's Joe Chill yeah. uh, <laughs> running away. And I, I know we're holding back on the artwork thing, but I mean, it's, you know, it's really damn good. <laughs> it, it's really damn good. There's just no two ways about it. It's just it's just there. I mean, it's perfect. And in the original version, the panels where the Waynes are getting shot are just white. Mm-hmm. There's It's just black ink and white. I mean, it's it's. Uh, it's very stark and and i mean it's it and then of course the next page you have bruce's eyes now and they're more you know he's he's well, of course he's older and of course he's also bleeding to death uh <laughs> but, but there's a nice transition there and and uh it's it's just so it's so powerfully done and and in that scene while we're talking about it i said that before about the bat coming in i I had never, of course, Miller established the bat crashing through the window in the dark night when it comes back to reclaim Batman in the mm-hmm. dark night. But, you know, here, before it always came through an open window in the origin, well, I mean, it literally crashes through the window. So, like you said, he's he's up the, the <laughs> operatic epic yeah. level to 11. I mean, you know, and I don't think that's uh, over the top. I mean, I think – I don't think that's going too far because – uh, he is setting up this, even though this is very down to earth, stripped down. Uh, the idea that this is the beginning of a legend is not lost in this story. It's it has a very epic feel, you know. Mm-hmm. And the bat comes in and it lands on his father's bust, and the the wings of the bat almost like they overlap the bust, almost as if to say, "I'm taking your identity." <laughs> you can't tell where one ends and the other begins. Right, exactly. And I'm masking who you are as the son of Thomas Wayne, mm-hmm. and now you're mine, you know. Ba- basically like. taking the place of his father. Like, the bat is now his father. Yeah. 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 So, uh-huh. and he's been literally reborn as, mm-hmm. as Batman, which you can argue he was born the night his parents died, but he was, uh, you know, he was kind of ambling without a, you know, without a purpose uh, or a means to that purpose. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's so it's you know, it's it, there's a lot to read into. It's, it gets downright poetic, really, if, you know, it, but it's it's very well done. I mean, it doesn't seem like I said, it doesn't seem like, well, now you're just being silly, you know, or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's just, it's so sincere. I right. mean, I think that's there's a there's a sincerity about this series from every creator that feels like, no, we're really, you know, we're taking this seriously. This is I mean, there's moments of humor in it that there's and, and Bruce Wayne even has a few, you know, interchanges with Alfred that are, are funny. You get a couple smiles out of him in this in this story. Right. Uh, so it's not like he's this completely dour, humorless character. Uh, but and, and on that same page we were talking about, you know, we're, we're getting into Gordon more than we ever have. But at the same time, 
they're actually building some mystery around Gordon too, because who was this guy that he can take out a green beret? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he hands him a ball bat to make up for the his handicap that he can't. You know, he, he's like giving him an edge. Like here, you're going to need this. Right. <laughs> Gordon's been almost beat to death. He hands the guy a ball bat to fight him. I mean, <laughs> this is one badass dude. I mean. This isn't Neil Hamilton, you know, if we ever needed Batman, we need him now. He can't even catch a jaywalker on his own. My God, this dude just took out a green beret with a baseball bat. He's, <laughs> he's definitely not Pat Hingle, Gordon, either. No, he's a, I think he's Gary Oldman with the special ops training, Gordon. I mean, <laughs> which actually he was pretty badass in the Dark Knight movies, too, which yeah. I loved his portrayal, which that owes everything to this, obviously. Every, every My- cool version of Jim Gordon starts right here. <laughs> oh yeah, my my favorite version of Bat- my favorite thing about Batman Begins is Gary Oldman as Gordon, and it's entirely rooted in this. Like the first, his first scene, not counting the flashback where he was on duty when Bruce's parents were killed, and I didn't care so much about that. But yeah, like when, once he's with Flash and everything, that comes right out of this, and yeah, yeah, I love it. I've been excited to revisit this story for this podcast because. I, and it was it was the thing that I, I intentionally omitted from our spotlight is because of who Frank Miller is today and what a lot of fans think about him, certainly fans in our community uh, and, and his more recent work. I didn't want that to be the last word on Frank Miller and his depiction of Batman. I don't want people's lasting impression to be all-star Batman and Robin and how... <laughs> Ridiculous! I, I know, I, I know. The Leylands make the point that it's intentionally satirical, and nobody's getting it. But I don't know if it's there. Like I just, I, I, I can't even look at that without almost throwing up in my mouth. Um, <laughs> I wanted to come back to this. I wanted to remember Frank Miller as a creator who worked on this Batman story and on Daredevil, who used the medium to tell these urban crime stories that he loved that happened to include and show how this type of world could be so bad, that how, how Gotham could be such a hell-on-earth type place, as you described, that the city created Batman because it needed Batman. Um, and the, the lyrical nature of some of these scenes and the way he and Mazzuccelli kind of sync up and, and do things. And you're right, like the, the second-to-last page in this that just goes back to show the night of the murder, you could take all of the dialogue out of this. And it's nothing against Miller because it, the dialogue is fine or the, the caption. But this could be a silent page and you mm-hmm. get it. And it's, it's everything you need to know about who Batman is from this page. And I don't know if I've seen a, I don't know if I've seen like a single page do the origin better than um, All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely that had mm-hmm. Superman's origin boiled down to four panels with eight words uh, mm-hmm. and, and just nailed it. This is pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's so expertly well done. So, yeah, I I loved this issue. I like where we're going with this story. I, I'm excited to cover more of these in future episodes. So, uh, yeah, I, I will say my last comment on this issue is I'm really excited to remember why this is such a great Batman story and why so many people love it. Yeah, same here. All right, folks, we are going to take another promo break right now, and then we will come back with your listener feedback from last episode. Don't go away. I regret to say, sir, Batman and Robin are not at present available. What? Oh, surely you you must be jesting. Alas, sir, I am not. 
Gotham City is overcome by villainy on the comic page from the likes of the Joker, the Riddler, and the Penguin. As they run rampant, only one man has the courage, the gall, and the skills to face the Silver Age. Hi, I'm J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. If you haven't guessed, this is an overly dramatic promo for my show, The Dave Cave, a Batman podcast looking at the tales of the dynamic duo from the Silver Age. Come back with me to a time when Batman was less grim, Robin was content to wear hot pants, and the villains didn't rip their own faces off. Each episode will examine a tale from the pages of comics such as Batman, Detective Comics, The Brave and the Bold, and World's Finest Comics. It's all the bat action, bat adventure, and bat puns that you can handle on The Dave Cave, available at thedavecavepodcast.com, iTunes, or the podcatcher of your choice. The Dave Cave Batman Podcast, because in the Silver Age, there were no limits. Holy unsatisfying ending. Alright, Nightcast, Episode 7, received Twitter favorites and retweets from Alex at AssamHarris15, Andrew in Belfast, Bister, Brad Dade, Bronze Age Babies, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics, Comic Superheroes, David Ace Gutierrez, David Weeder, Dylan O'Lang, Fire and Water Network, Jacob Edwards, Jeffrey Brown, Jim Bow, Jimmy P.S. Hayes, Kaz Z Earl, Keith G. Baker, Laurel at Mountainflower One, Longbox Crusade, Mario at Luther Lang, Martin Gray, Max Romero, Reeve Z. FX, Rolled Spine Podcast, Selena Kyle, Slang Word Resists, Stephen Bird, Treasury Comics, and Trekker Talk. Okay, since last episode, we've received Facebook likes and shares from Aaron Henley, Adam Stabelli, Ben Brainerd, Billy LaCase, Brad Dade, Brian Ng, Brian Cray, Clinton Robinson, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reviews by Walt, Daniel Doherty, Dave Clark, David Ace Gutierrez, President of the Mike Nesmith Fan Club, David Foster, DeBeche, Derek William Crabb, the Fire and Water Podcast Network. That was nice of those guys. H. Daniel Reibold, <laughs> Jason Albrich, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Kal-El Commandy, Kristen Gibson, Kurt Lloyd, The Long Box Crusade, Mark Lax, Marcus Soros, Martin Gray, Michael Bailey, Michael Campbell, Mike Zumo, Nicholas Prom, Pat Sampson, Patrick Delmore, Rich Matsumoto, Rob Kelly, Robert Myers, Scott Cage, Shag Matthews, Sean Strawbridge, Siskoid, Steve J. Rogers, Stephen Bird, Supermates Podcast, who the hell are those people? <laughs> Thomas Falvey, Van Z, and Zoom Yukonori. Uh, we got a few late comments on episode six. Uh, the first one from Mark Lax. Mark said, a bit behind on my listening, but just heard episode four. To me, we're still dealing with the pre-crisis Jason Todd. When I started collecting comics, Jason was already Robin, and though somewhat a clone of Dick, he had his own story and just seemed like a good kid. This story starts to show Jason with a rougher exterior that was to come, but still the reliable partner that Batman needed. It's unfortunate what they did to the character post-year one, but that's something you'll be getting into soon, so I'll hold my opinion till then. Still, it shouldn't have ended the way it did. Yeah, well, we we will be getting to that, so... Yes. <laughs> John M. Wilson said, Just read this to my seven-year-old for bedtime stories. We both rather enjoyed it, more so than its predecessor. Keenan really got into the comedy of errors, guessing which Batman we were seeing at the start of any given scene. If this is typical of the derided Collins run, I say bring it. Well, uh, after four issues of Batman Year One, we're bringing more of it, so... <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I mean... 
again, there are things about the Collins run that I am going to praise, and there are things that I'm not going to praise so much. So we will see. We will so get into far, it. I have surprisingly enjoyed it, enjoyed reading them again and talking about them more than I thought I would. You know, I have actually enjoyed the stories. I The biggest stumbling block is the next story we're going to read. <laughs> the next okay. one that we get by him. Yeah, yeah, I know. We'll see. So we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, on to the Facebook comments from Episode 7. If you'll remember, that was when we talked about Detective Comics 570. Andrew Leyland from Hey Kids Comics and the upcoming Overlooked Dark Knight podcast that he's going to co-host with Michael Bailey. And he said, Alan Davis is undeniably a great artist, which is why it's sad to report that he is easily the most disappointing experience I have had meeting a creator. What a grump. Oh, that's too bad. (laughs) Regarding the prostitute... (laughs) Regarding the prostitute... (laughs) We don't need to know, Andy. Come on now. (laughs) Back in the day, Starsky and Hutch had a number of prostitute contacts who they were friendly with and took care of in exchange for information. The show was condemned for this, but to me it makes sense. Keep the lower-scale criminals on the side, take care of them, and they'll help you catch the bigger fish. I figured Batman has much the same relationship with some of the lesser criminals of Gotham. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it does. It makes perfect sense. I mean, cops in every major detective branch or detective squad in across the United States, they have paid criminal informants. Uh, they actually have a network of like lower level like junkies, pushers, you know, criminals like guys who it might not necessarily be worth their time to put through the system if they can help them nab a bigger, you know, more threatening criminal down the road. Um, these guys are often put through a registry so that the police station will have a, a data bank where they actually have these in case they ever need to refer to them in case so they can keep them out of jail, out of the system if, the, you know, they're picked up in a different precinct or things like that. And yeah, it would make perfect sense that Batman would have a similar network. It's like, it's not worth my time or, I don't know. Yeah, it was just, I think it would be, he would have a network of people like this, like Rhonda or something that he wouldn't bust for solicitation because he can use her information, her contacts. So, yeah. Well, when you remove Batman from the duly deputized, I never can say that, duly deputized agent of the law mm-hmm. like Adam West was, then you, you got to figure he's really not concerned with lawbreakers of that nature that aren't harming anyone or you know, damaging justice. So, I mean, you know, he, so he's better to keep them on the streets uh, so he can figure out, you know, what's going on. And I liked in, uh, like, Untold Legend of the Batman, they showed that Batman had a network of people he went and talked to. Uh, So they had kind of started to establish that in the Bronze Age. Of course, when he's matches Malone, he's going and talking to people and stuff. So I I always liked that aspect of it, you know. And of course, then you usually got to see Batman with the rubber mask over his cowl, which is always fun, too. (laughs) J. David Weeder from the Dave Cave podcast said, I like the Catwoman-Batman relationship discussion. To me, Selina is Batman's Irene Adler, the woman. She's different. He digs that. But they exist on two parallel worlds, metaphorically speaking. Ships in the night passing each other, but never able to fully connect. Now, yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I actually I thought of something right after we did the last episode. I think right after I – or while I was editing it. There was a comparison that I thought of. Have you ever seen the movie Out of Sight with uh, George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez? Uh, I think I did. When, when did that come out? Um, late, uh, early 2000s. Okay, I think I did, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, basically, he's a career criminal, um, a thief, a jewel thief, bank thief, or whatever, and she's a federal agent, I think, with alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Anyway, yes. she, she's chasing him. They have this moment where they're locked in the car. They sort of 
connect. It's it's a, one of those things where they just instantly kind of maybe lust at first sight. They end up like going out, like having a date, like sleeping with each other. But by the end, there's a moment where she catches him. She's got a gun on him when he's trying to commit a crime, and he almost tries to commit like suicide by cop. Like he puts his ski mask over so she doesn't have to look at his face, and basically tries to get her to shoot him because he doesn't want to go back to jail. Um, she ends mm. up just putting a bullet through his leg so he's wounded and can't escape, and then she she gets him back. And to me, like their relationship to me sort of seems like Batman and Robin, but in reverse. Um, obviously, the genders are reversed, and in this case, George Clooney is playing the Catwoman role instead of Batman. <laughs> um, but but similar in that, in that like they they do have this connection. But like if he catches her in the act. He's got to stop her. He's not going to go out of his way, but if he if he catches her like with an open safe, he's got to try and bring her down. Now, the way that movie ends is with a scene where he's being transferred to prison, and she's supervising the transfer or whatever, and puts him in the same van or the same prison bus as a character. Samuel L. Jackson comes in for like a, a two second cameo at the very end, and his whole thing is that he always escapes from prison. Samuel Jackson's character. Mm. So it's like, hmm, why did she put her sort of boyfriend in the same prison transfer bus with a guy who's famous for escaping. Maybe yeah. she wants to give him a chance or whatever, and, that, and they kind of linger. It ends with her kind of giving like a knowing smile to the audience. So that's sort of how I kind of thought about Batman and Catwoman, that for him, he can never settle down with Catwoman, but he loves chasing her. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is what defines their relationship, that they can't be together, but as long as they have something, even if that something is the chase, if that is what defines their relationship, they'll settle for that because they like each other that much. Yep. I that yeah, exactly. I mean there's been different things. Like there's that nice little silent uh short that's on the mystery of the Batwoman mm-hmm. uh animated movie with Batman and Catwoman where they're I think it, I forgot what it's called. It's it's like called The Chase or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And and it's it's great. I mean it's pretty much like it capsulizes the the whole Batman Catwoman relationship pretty much in that regard and that's the way I like them, not, you know, having yeah. rooftop sex. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the chase. You can't catch him. <laughs> okay. Right. He might catch something. Yeah. <laughs> Especially given uh, Selena's former profession. Stop reminding <laughs> us of the rooftops. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. We also got a comment from Dan Doherty on Facebook who mentioned that Detective Comics 569 and 570, that two-parter, those stories were reprinted in a collection called Stacked Deck, the greatest Joker stories ever told, published by Longmeadow Press. And this version, as Dan mentions, was recolored, and he posted a scan of the page where Batman and Robin enter the bar of McSurley's, and the character of Rhonda is completely recolored. Mm-hmm. Uh, she She's in like pink and magenta tones. She's got pink hair, very different from the other one where she's got red and yellow clothes or she's got black hair or something, so... Very interesting. Yeah. It made me realize that Rhonda's color scheme is a lot like Robin's in the original. I mm-hmm. didn't even think about that at the time, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of weird. You know, I remember when that book came out. I had got the uh, the greatest Batman stories ever told and the greatest Joker stories ever told hardcovers. I still have them. Mm. The Batman was beat all the hell. <laughs> uh, but uh, when they came out in eighty late eighty eight eighty nine, and not long after that, they came out with this stacked deck version. I'm like, well. What the crap, man? It's got more stories in it. But I couldn't, you know, it's like, well, I already got this one. I'm not buying it. But I was tempted because it did have a few extra Joker stories in it. So, and I think at the same time, Longmeadow did a, like, complete Frank Miller Batman Mm -hmm. that had Dark Knight, Year One, and the Christmas Story in it. I remember that, yeah, yeah. 
And I've got the original paperback of the greatest Batman stories ever told, or at least the one that came out in the late 80s. I used to have the greatest Joker stories ever told. I think it had a cover of Joker holding up the laughing fish. Was it a Brian Bolland cover? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, I I assumed it was. I used to have that, and again, that's another one where I don't know what happened to it. I wonder if I may have traded it to somebody or lent it to a friend and never gotten it back. I don't know what happened to that one. Might have... Might have been ruined in like a basement flood or something, but uh, oh. yeah, I don't yeah. Know. that's a shame. The original had a Kyle Baker cover on the hardcover on the dust jacket, mm. and uh, and yeah, the then the, the trade paperback of the Batman one has a Walt Simonson yeah. Batman, and then the original had like a Dave Dorman Batman painting. But you know, it's all sharp. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let us move on to the comments posted on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, if you leave a comment on the website, we, and by we, I mean Chris, most likely will be sure to address it uh, on the <laughs> website. Though we usually try to read at least part of it on the next episode, but we might skip a few parts for the sake of time and expediency. Our first comment came from Rob Kelly from the Film and Water podcast and many other shows here on the network. Rob said, Try as I might, I just can't find anything wrong with these Bar Davis stories. I love the whole bit of Batman and Robin in the bar, giving the boy wonder a chance to see some of the seamier corners of Gotham. I'm not sure I get Ryan's distress over the scene. Would anyone in that bar dare lay a finger on Batman's junior partner when he's in the next room? And I'll, I'll stop right there, because a lot of people kind of mentioned, like, why is Ryan freaking out about this scene? Would... I guess it just kind of, to me, sort of further explaining my whole weirdness about that that scene when they go to McSurley's, is it didn't feel like Batman was training Robin in that moment, like he was helping Robin become a better crime fighter or anything. To me, it almost read like, this is Bruce testing Jason's manhood, or, or how well he can handle himself in this situation. Are you man enough to be in a room with these people and not freak out? Can you talk to a woman of this type and not like giggle or lose yourself or whatever? Like, it just yeah, that's that's all I can think of. Is like it wasn't so much like the danger as it just felt like he's he's not testing Robin; he's testing Jason in that moment, and that just felt a little bit strange. I, I, yeah, I can't say any more than that, but. <laughs> Uh, Rob goes on, in fact, this whole scene reminds me of why I essentially gave up on Batman comics after the movie started influencing everything. Batman went from the world's greatest detective to the world's greatest facebreaker, someone inclined to bust skulls mostly just because he can. I prefer this Batman who prefers to save physical violence for supervillains. All of the other criminal denizens of the city can be kept in check by sheer intimidation. I do agree the ending is a bit abrupt. Batman smiling in the next to last panel is probably a bit too much considering what just happened to Catwoman. Maybe an extra page or two would have made the conclusion work a bit better. And yeah, maybe finding a way to turn Selina without actually scrambling her brain might have left a better aftertaste. Still, messing with someone's mind is a very Joker-type scam, and dragging Dr. Moon in is a nice touch. I like how, in his own way, he's just as much of a sociopath. It's a crime that DC messed with Alan Davis to the point where he finally just bailed on the company. What a waste. He is one of superhero comics' best talents. I can't believe DC let him slip away. Great episode all around. Soft sell for the win. <laughs> a comment on the music from last episode. <laughs> yeah, I, you know that's a good point, and I, this this is going to come up. But the idea that Batman, you know, they emphasize that Batman, you know, the brutality of Batman more in the comics that it's not his intellect that makes him uh, the character he is. It's the fact that he's the greatest warrior on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so. 
that's that's a good point. I mean, we've we'll, we're going to see that evolution as we uh, as we cover the comics here. Right. Well, we also the evolution of Batman from intimidation from like somebody who would scare these criminals, keep them in check, to the sort of urban legend where people aren't really sure. Like the Batman, a couple of years after this story is told, would never walk into McSurley's because he wouldn't let that many people get a good look at him. Mm, and good point. It, like you know, he's always stalking from the shadows and everything. This is a Batman who still can walk into a public bar like full of these criminals, or whatever, and let his presence scare the crap out of them. He doesn't have to basically wait until they walk outside to take a piss in the alley, and you know, like leaps down, grabs them from up above or something. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, Michael Bailey from Views from the Long Box, and who is launching his own Batman podcast called The Overlooked Dark Knight with Andy Leyland starting this summer. Michael said, going off what Rob wrote back in 2005, I was on a panel at DragonCon, and after we finished talking about what we were talking about, the subject of who would win in a fight came up. At one point, someone was talking about Batman, and this guy in the audience said, he's not the world's greatest fighter, he's the world's greatest detective. I realized in that moment that as much as I enjoyed the majority of the Batman comics I had read in the late 90s and early thousands, something was missing. It seemed that fandom was more focused on Batman's ability to beat someone silly became more important than his keen mind and detective skills. I don't think this was intentional, but there it was, and the idea has only gotten stronger after three Nolan films that put more emphasis on the action rather than the detective work. Fun fact, that guy was Shag. It was our first meeting. Weird. <laughs> this was Shag during his Batman phase, obviously. Uh, your coverage of the issue was so amazing that I can't disagree with any part of it, and I can't add anything to it. The only thing that stood out was Chris suggesting that Davis might have been a better choice for Infinite Crisis than Phil Jimenez. Chris cited Phil's lateness, but I got the feeling that everything about the project was late, and the creators that were ahead of the game back then were unhappy because of how last minute the publishing was. Davis would have been amazing even if I liked the fact that Phil and George Perez and Jerry Ordway all got to contribute to that story. See, even not completely agreeing with you, I don't disagree with you. Again, weird. <laughs> yeah, and I won't take anything away from Infinite Crisis. Certainly looked great. I mean, it, you know, I, I, I mean, I like Phil Jimenez, and of course, I love Jerry Ordway and, and George Perez. But uh, yeah, you know, I just I kind of wish somebody DC had given Davis a, a big event at some point, you know, because the man cannot draw anybody wrong, you know, so. <laughs> This big, you know, the nail makes me want to see more Alan Davis drawing everybody in the DC universe. So. Mm -hmm. All I really heard was, Michael, the first line from his paragraph, your coverage of this issue was so amazing that I can't disagree with any part of it, and I can't add anything into it. Should have been a full stop right there. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, before we go on, we've played the promo already in this episode, and we've mentioned it a couple times, but Michael Bailey and Andy Leyland are finally doing what the Lord put them on this planet to do by launching their own Batman podcast called The Overlooked Dark Knight. It should start later on in the summer. They're going to be covering stories sort of in that realm of, like, Batman issue 300 to 400 and thereabouts, kind of like the era before the one that we started in. Uh, Michael talks a little bit more about the genesis on uh, his most recent episode of Views from the Long Box as of when we record this. So uh, definitely, definitely check that out when, when the podcast comes out. So somebody, okay, we got the Dave Cave covering the Silver Age Batman, mm -hmm. Michael and Andy covering the late Bronze Age Batman. We're covering the post-crisis Batman. So somebody start a Batman podcast where you're covering the Denny O'Neill era, the O'Neill Adams up through the Englehart Rogers era. But just remember, when you get the Englehart Rogers era, you better get me on that damn show. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sounds good. All right. Joe X said Profile would probably be running the prison inside a week. <laughs> yeah, he probably uh, would. With Moose. <laughs> uh, he went on later to say Batman in the Outsiders isn't really Batman in the Outsiders unless you include the letters pages, as Barr let his fans run wild. Tia Maple, the Bucket Lung Brigade, and the continuity debate of Brave and the Bold 123, a Zany Haney classic. Good and crazy times. Yeah, I know the Zany Haney classic thing is about the fact that Metamorpho knew Batman's secret identity in that story. And like people were writing in saying, would you say that Metamorpho doesn't know that Batman's Bruce Wayne? But he knows in ba- Brave and the Bold number 123. And then Mike Barr's like, have you read Bob Haney's stories? <laughs> <laughs> None of them make any sense in continuity. It can't, it, you know, I'm not counting that. And then there was back, a lot of back and forth and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> See, if those people had just been a little bit more patient, they could have listened to Rob and Shag talk about Zany Haney podcasts. That's right. Would have been, yeah. <laughs> uh, Charles Coletta, he posted a video with Mike Barr, Alan Davis, and Alan Grant on a panel at the 2016 Akron Comic Con. He said, I thought you guys may find this of interest. Maybe you can do an interview with them yourselves. And Martin Gray responded to the video link saying, I'll be watching the whole thing to see if Alan Davis cracks a smile. Despite sharing a birthday with me, the happiest boy on earth, he's always come across as very dour. But my word, what a talent. (laughs) Did you get a chance to watch the video? I have not had a chance to watch it yet. I need to. I need to watch it. I I didn't want to watch it at work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I need to. And as far as getting interviews... Chris and I, we have talked about that. There are certainly people from this era that I would like to talk to and get interviews. Uh, we haven't arranged anything specifically yet, but we have talked about it. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Speaking of interviews, uh, there is an interview with Mike W. Barr uh, discussing Batman in the latest issue of Back Issue. That is issue number 95. It's a Creatures of the Night issue. Um, it's got Moon Knight on the cover, but Back Issue editor Michael Yuri interviewed Mike W. Barr at a panel at a con recently, and it's uh, transcribed in this issue. And I've, I'm reading it right now, and so far it's a great interview, so check that out. Very cool. All right, Lewis said, if Robin can go anywhere near the Joker, he can go to McSurley's. Despite the presence of lowlifes, there's still a line to be drawn where kids are concerned. That's a branding. And maybe Batman was trying to do right by Robin in introducing him to Rhonda, get him more worldly-wise than Bruce may have been growing up as a traumatized rich kid. (laughs) It's great to see such a multifaceted Batman, paternal with Robin, tender with ladies, unscrupulous with informants, furious with the Joker, and body shielding with gunfire. Oh, not yet. It's funny that the character became so aloof, mopey, and surly as his Bat family increased with decent figures, like Dick, Barbara, and Tim. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I, I've said this before. I really like Barr's well-rounded Batman. <laughs> it's all Batman, all in one package, and he makes it work. So There's something I forgot oh. to mention. When we were talking about what Rob and Michael said about Batman becoming less of the detective, mm-hmm. I've often kind of wondered if – at the same time, sort of the, the, the evolution of Batman, or maybe the devolution of his character, becoming less and less of a detective and more of just a sort of, you know, brutal fighter and a warrior, and like the emphasis on him just like beating up the bad guys rather than sort of tracking cases. I find it odd that that seems to run in parallel with the evolution of Barbara Gordon as Oracle. And hmm. I think she became the detective character for him. Huh. And, I, and I did think that that ended up becoming more of a hindrance in his world, that she could do so much, that 
he didn't have to be a detective because any question that he needed answered, he could call her and she typed a few keys on the computer and, and she got that information for him. And like within the Nolan movies, the Lucius Fox character kind of played a similar role in that. Like he's had so many supporting characters who have been the sort of surrogate detective and the surrogate kind of hacker and information gatherer for him that that is kind of diminished the detective skills. But that also part of that is just the, the nature of technology changing and how so much more investigation is electronic based than mm-hmm. like boots on the ground gumshoe type of uh, detective work. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. But I mean, in, in a lot of ways, they represent kind of that crutch that the back computer and the various uh, things that uh, the various pieces of equipment on the 66 show that would answer all their questions. You know, I mean, that was part of the joke that they could tell it anything and, you know, put alphabet soup in it and it would come out and spell something that they needed to know. I mean, you know, I mean, silly stuff like that. But, you know, when when you had characters like Oracle and even Tim to a point was more mm-hmm. of, a, you know, computer whiz and treated as more of a detective than Dick was as Robin. Uh, so, you know, that yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. So when you expanded the cast, you didn't have the Holmes-Watson relationship of Batman and Robin for Batman to bounce the exposition off of, then that went to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess it just shows that Oracle ruined everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Stella. <laughs> oh. And from the Supergirl blog said, Batman sticking two fingers inside a narrow glass and breaking it with his fingers while saying how popular profile would be in prison is a graphic and effective image. How did that get by the code? You know, I honestly didn't think about it in that way. I didn't either but, until I read it. Just God, kind of, now that I have, I'm like, I can't. Understand. It's like, oh, man. Oh, I, I, yeah, I broke out in a cold sweat, actually, after I read that comment. I was like, damn, uh, I know you're a doctor, so you think more about that, but ah. Uh. <laughs> He knows about body cavities. <laughs> he continues, thanks so much for filling in the details about Davis leaving the book. All over a Mauser pistol. Amazing. My guess is DC didn't have the guts to ask the superstar team of Miller and Mazzuchelli to change their work. Good for Davis to stand up for his artistic rights. But in reality, why was DC being such a stickler? I am right on the Davis bandwagon. There is something very natural and organic about his work. Nothing is angular or sharp. Everything is fluid. He would have been perfect for Aquaman. And as I said last time, if he can make Excalibur look good, he can make anything look good. Um, you know, the deal with the Mauser, um, traditionally, you know, I, I, and, and I do agree that it was handled poorly, but traditionally the, the Wayne murder weapon was seen as like a forty five type gun. So, I mean, even back in the, in the Golden Age. So I can kind of see why DC wouldn't want to change the gun, but somebody should have told them, no, you don't use that gun. It's a, this model of a gun we've decided. And I'm sure they would have been fine with it. It's just the fact that there was no communication yeah. to them. You know, that's, uh, you know, and I, and I wanted to say I got all of that information from the, uh, the Modern Masters book by Eric Nolan Weatherton from uh, Tomorrow's. The volume on Alan Davis, it's a great book. Lots of great artwork. I can't recommend it enough. It's, I don't know if it's the print version still out there on tomorrow's but uh, if it's not they probably have a digital copy anyway yeah. uh, i mean i don't know what was going through his head or, or more of like sort of the office politics besides the version of the story that you recounted as told by him 
But if I could defend their position a little bit, I mean, as we see right now, we just covered the pages that he objected to in this issue of Batman mm-hmm. 404. The issue where he draws the gun in Detective Comics is still four months away. Now, yes, Davis was working that far ahead, which is great that he they built that into their schedule. But DC might have just said, look, we got one that's got to be published first and the other one that's not going to be published for another four months. Change the one that's coming out later because we have more time. Maybe that factored into their decision. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez, our best friend said, taking Davis off of Aquaman to place him on The Outsiders, that's one of the worst editorial decisions I think I've ever heard. And that led to a little bit of a thread between you and David over what The Outsider sales numbers were and the fact that it inexplicably was one of the best-selling books at the time. And that's why it got to the um, Baxter paper treatment format that um, like New Teen Titans and Legion also had at the time. I'm guessing it was. I don't know that, but I'm just guessing because I know, I know Legion and Titans were some of their best-selling books. They got the Baxter treatment. Outsiders did. Those were the only three books that did where they had like two titles. Um, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't even know if Outsiders ever got around to I, I, Yeah, I guess the early issues of the Outsiders Baxter series was reprinted eventually in Adventures of the Outsiders, but I know – I think Adventures of the Outsiders got canceled before the other reprint newsstand titles did, you know, when those uh, Titans and Legion. But the Outsiders were popular. I mean, there was a, a Mayfair Games little miniature figure set of the Outsiders and the Masters of Disaster, you know, when the, <laughs> for, for our Hero Points listeners. Uh, you know, and I had and I got that set thinking Batman was in it. He wasn't. I was pissed. Okay. Uh, <laughs> He was in the Justice League set. It's like, well, Batman's not in the Justice League right now. But, you know, but anyway. But, yeah, so they – I think they were – you know, I, I mean, that was a popular title. I mean, you know, say what you want about it now, and I know Siskoid hates it. But, uh, you know, maybe Frank can come forward with some numbers. He's always good at digging those up. But I, as far as I know, it was a good seller. So, Hey, the Outsiders included Black Lightning, who is going to have his own TV show now on the, on the CW network as part of the that shared universe of DC Comics. And yep. Katana was featured in the now Oscar-winning film Suicide <laughs> Squad. <laughs> So. <laughs> that was the biggest thing I took from the Oscars, and, and I know Rob pointed that out in, 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 in the Film and Water episode. It's like, do you can actually say Oscar-winning Suicide Squad? Just understand that it is for hair and makeup, so Jared Leto's face tattoos were worthy of an Oscar. It's, um, it's because he can take his hand and put it over his mouth with that smile. That's the- <laughs> yeah. But you know what? The makeup in the movie was really, really good. It was really well done. Of the three movies that were nominated, and and usually it's only like two or three movies that get nominated for hair and makeup of the three, I think. Yeah, Suicide Squad deserved it of those three. I think it's weird that a couple of years ago, Guardians of the Galaxy was nominated in the same category and lost to, I think, like Grand Budapest Hotel. (laughs) Oh, okay. After Gamora and Drax (laughs) were done so effectively, they gave it to the Grand Budapest Hotel. They liked Ray Fiennes' hair or something? I don't know. Whatever. You know, I mean, we, that's a whole other discussion, but the whole, like, <laughs> it, it still surprises me that, that a genre movie like Suicide Squad, especially one that was so divisive, got an Oscar. I mean, usually they'd just kick it out just for, you know, because of what it was, Not right. no matter how good it, that, that aspect of it was. But anyway, it's there. They want it. So. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, moving on, Jimmy McGlinchey said, It is a pity that Alan Davis's DC output is limited. One project you missed on your roundup was the two-part prestige format Superboy's Legion, with script from his regular inker, Mark Farmer. Talk about an artist that is well-suited to the Legion of Superheroes. He also managed to put a Batman cameo in there as well. Mm, I'm gonna have. I don't have that one. I'm gonna have to check that out. And I knew it existed, but I just, you know, I figured you might want to talk at some point during that episode, <laughs> so I didn't include everything he did. I just kind of lumped it in with he did special projects like the nail. So yes, so. and that's the thing about our our creator spotlights. I mean, I certainly didn't list everything that Frank Miller did. I mean, I could have talked about Terminator and RoboCop, but I figured at some point we should probably talk about Batman. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if if there are things like that that are fans or our listeners really love and they want to throw out like that sounds great because i would actually i'd never heard about that but i would really like to see alan davis do a legion of superheroes story so if that one's out there i I might check that out if i can find it our buddy siskoid from first strike the invasion podcast and others here on the network said davis gives batman especially robin so much personality it actually makes the story elements work think of a middling or lesser batman artist and make him draw some of those sequences and we might have a very different opinion of Robin hanging with prostitutes, etc. Or am I wrong? No, you are not wrong. That's a very good point. <laughs> uh, he continues, great episode as always. I hope you didn't mind me and Bass plotting through your gardens this week. <laughs> but can't wait for you to address the invasion issue next year. Yes, the first strike invasion uh, episode from uh, earlier this week as we record this was actually the detective uh, crossover issue of Invasion, and they did a great job with it. It was uh, very welcome, and we'll get around. We should just, you know what? We should just skip that episode and just rerun the Invasion when we get to <laughs> Give us a week, couple weeks off. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for that. Um, he did say that he can't wait for us to address the invasion issue next year. Um, Cisco, I hate to break it to you. I actually plotted out where this issue will fall. Detective Comics 595 is going to be episode 67 of this podcast. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it's probably not going to be next year. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. So... Uh, but they they did do a great job on that episode, and if you if you listen to us and you need more Batman talk in your life, give that episode a shot because they have a really good discussion of where the character is, their personal histories, what they liked about him, what they might not like about him. They talk about the Lego Movie a little bit more. Um, it, yeah, it's a it's a really fun episode. If if you love Batman, check that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, Am I the only one who can't remember which is Dr. Moon and which is Professor Milo? I think the latter has the pudding bowl haircut. I have a similar problem with the Justice League of America, Utility Evil Scientists, Professor Ivo, and Ira Quimby. Uh, and that kind of led to a little spin-off discussion of people of you and Michael Bailey talking about the differences between Dr. Moon and Professor Ivo. Martin then said, Call me old-fashioned, but I don't think Batman should be threatening guys with prison rape and even pretending he's willing to plant evidence. I'm all for hanging out with Rhonda, though. I expect Batman was planning to eventually send Jason to her for lessons on how to be a sophisticated young man. <laughs> Martin, you lost me in that thing. You said, Call me old-fashioned, and then you ended it with Batman sending Jason to a hooker. It's like, <laughs> At what point does that stop being old-fashioned? <laughs> well, he can't be like, you know, he doesn't know for certain that a buxom alien princess is going to come along <laughs> to make Robin into a man like what happened with Dick. So how, many, yeah, how many times is that going to happen to a Robin? <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> All right. 
Okay, Brian Linton said, Thank you, gentlemen, for helping me realize what a big Alan Davis fan I am, without ever knowing it. I have to start by saying I am not an artist, nor do I have an artist's eye. I'd be hard-pressed to identify any comic book artist by his or her work, whether you offered me money or held a gun to my head. FYI, I'd prefer the former. <laughs> that being said, your profile of Alan Davis made me realize how much of his work I've enjoyed over the years. I've never been a big fan of the X-Men, but I could not get enough of Excalibur back in the day. While on the DC side, The Nail is a favorite that I still like to revisit from time to time. Thank you again for the continuing art education. Well, you're very welcome. And any any way we can turn people on to the art of Alan Davis, we're all for. Although apparently, if you're going to meet him at a convention, uh, beware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, temper your expectations because a few people have said that he's not really a fun, sunny, pleasant guy to talk to. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, and you mentioned turning people on to the art of Alan Davis. Well, we get to do that again on the very next episode. Yes. Um, so looking forward to that. Uh, it's a, a Scarecrow episode. And like I kind of teased, Alan Davis's Scarecrow is moi, magnifique. So and that particular issue inspired an episode of Batman the Animated Series. It too, did, so. it did. Yeah, I just reread that episode, or I just reread that issue, and I was like, oh, I forgot about this. But uh, yeah, <laughs> very good. Uh, I think that is going to be it. Like I mentioned, next episode we will cover Detective Comics 571, and the episode after that we will continue our coverage of Batman Year One. This is a great time for Batman comics. Uh, we. Both of these, like, you, you could not have two flavors that look and sound more different, but they're both really, really good at this era. So, oh yeah, we are breathing rare air here for uh, for <laughs> Batman comics. This is really good stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, we're you know, I, I think we may be peaking here. I hate to say it. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, it's we're gonna crash hard in a few months. <laughs> We'll just have more to gripe about later on, but right now we're all just, yay, you know. (laughs) So, people, thank you very much for listening to this episode. Uh, Please continue to support the show by, you know, liking it, sharing it, retweeting it on all the social media formats. Please leave us iTunes reviews. Please continue to leave comments on Facebook as well as on the Fire & Water Podcast website. We love hearing from you. Uh, And until then, we will talk to you again in about two weeks. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening.
Yeah.